well, hello. Uh, we're continuing in our series in John's Gospel, and uh, today we've reached chapter 8. Very well-known story. Uh, so let's get straight into it. John chapter 8, starting at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I don't know whether you enjoy a good political interview, such as you might get on Newsnight or the Andrew Marr Show or the Today program on Radio 4, you know, the kind of thing where you have a, uh, an aggressive, assertive interviewer trying to get the politician or whoever it is to say something they really don't want to say, and the politician is ducking and diving. Um, depending on my loyalties and my biases, I'm either shouting, just answer the question, or if my biases are in the opposite direction, I'm saying, just give him time to speak. Well, this, in a way, is the kind of thing that's going on uh, here. The religious leaders frequently tried, kept trying to get Jesus to say something that would get him into trouble. And that's exactly what's going on here. But far more sinister than anything that you've ever seen on Newsnight or heard on the Detail program, they've dragged in, they've baited their trap with this terrified, helpless woman. John doesn't give us this woman's backstory. I mean, have the Pharisees literally just found her and spontaneously dragged her into Jesus' presence? Or have they had her up their sleeve for a while, been plotting and trying to find an occasion to spring this trap on Jesus? Has she literally been found in another man's bed? Or is she the victim of village gossip? Is this a long-term relationship she's been part of or a one-off event? What's going on? Has she been thrown out of her home? And I guess the biggest question of all, where is the man? <laughs> I mean, adultery is one sin you don't commit alone. This is a dramatic event. It's full of humiliation and 
utter terror. Stoning, you don't even want to think about it. Stoning is a horrific way to kill someone. And something that is particular about stoning is that it communicates judgment and rejection by the whole community. The community carries out the execution. Jesus' calmness in this situation is remarkable. Listen, whatever you feel as you hear this story, Jesus felt far more. He was there in the moment. We're just reading it off a page. He is, was far more emotionally in tuned, attuned and uh, emotionally intelligent than any of us. Whatever you feel, he felt far more, yet he controls his responses. The leader's hatred of Jesus is palpable, so significant. He is the light shining in the darkness and people are either attracted to him or repelled by him. That's really clear what is going on here. I wonder if you ever find that people's response to you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, ever seems out of proportion. Well, let's not lose sight of the possibility that you might just be irritating. But let's also recognize often something else far more deeper is going on behind the scenes. We know from uh, uh, Ephesians 6.12 that we are in a spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, someone has said, people, some people will never like you because the spirit in you irritates the demons in them. Well, again, don't use this as an excuse for your obnoxious behavior at times. <laughs> But let's be open to the fact there is far more going on around us than we sense with our five senses, than we see or hear. We are in a spiritual warfare. Jesus recognizes this later on in the chapter. In verse 44, he calls it out. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Their attempt to trap Jesus is very clever, actually. I mean, he's basically got two choices, hasn't he? He either says kill her, in which case he will end up in trouble with the Romans because while the Romans had allowed the local authorities to have certain uh, powers, they had reserved the right to carry out executions to themselves. If Jesus says kill her, he's going to end up in trouble with the occupying Romans. On the other hand, if he says let her off, he's going to appear to be rejecting the law of Moses. Because let's be clear, under the law of Moses, this woman did deserve to die. Leviticus 20 verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22, make it very clear that the punishment for adultery was death. Whatever our modern eyes and sensibilities may be reading into this story, it's not actually a story about whether or not this woman deserves to die. The story is actually about how many other people deserve to die for their sin as well. We can learn a lot from Jesus' responses in this situation. 
I mean, what is this stooping and writing in the ground all about? I think remarkably it tells us something about Jesus' humanity and his divinity at the same time. We know that Jesus, as he walked on the earth, as he was scribbling in the dust of that market square, he is fully God and fully man. In his humanity, Jesus, as he walked on the earth, was demonstrating how a spirit-filled human being can live in this world. And in his humanity, I'd suggest maybe Jesus is just de-escalating the situation. He's just giving himself time to think and to pray before he responds. He is going low, which is usually a good response when you find yourself in an, uh, uh, an escalating situation. James 1.19 says, Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Jesus is demonstrating this very thing. Whenever we find ourselves, we can follow Jesus' example, whenever we find ourselves in a situation that is getting heated, this is a good response. Give yourself time before you respond. When you get that email, I've, I've learned this the hard way, when you get this email and you're fuming and you dash out your response and click send, no, sometimes it's best write the email and then just leave it in drafts and come back to it the next day. You may find you completely rewrite it or never send it. Social media can get us into so much trouble, can't it? Because you, you just respond in the moment and say something actually which makes the whole thing far worse. Now, um, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you, you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I don't know if you find this sometimes, but if you're known as a Christian, sometimes people want to put us on the spot about all kinds of things, all kinds of moral and ethical and theological questions, which in the moment they want an answer to. And, uh, you know, praise God for Christian apologists. Thank you. Uh, praise God for those who get involved in these debates. And sometimes it is right to address it. But Peter is clear, you're not answering every time. You are giving the reason for the hope that is in you. And often it's good to ask the question, is this an opportunity for me to give a reason for the hope that's in me? Or is this just a rabbit hole or even a trap that is going to make things far worse? Jesus didn't answer every question he was asked. Usually he elevated the conversation. He got behind the heart that was in the question. Or sometimes he just didn't answer. Give yourself time. So Jesus' response tells us a lot about his humanity and sets us an example. But it also tells us about his divinity as he's writing there in that dust and that dirt. Jesus is fully God, sustaining the universe by the power of his word, even as he's in the flesh, in that market square. In his divinity, John has already told us, we covered this in a, a few weeks ago in John 5, 27, that Jesus, the living word of God, has been uniquely appointed by the Father as judge of the world. They're calling Jesus to judge this situation, this woman. 
and he starts by writing in the ground with his finger. That's eternal God. He's done it before. You can read in Exodus 31, 18, uh, 1300 years earlier, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave it to him in two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And it tells you there in Exodus 31 that they were written by the finger of God. The same finger that's writing in this market square dust. Maybe Jesus was writing out the Ten Commandments and people in the crowd were thinking, well, I haven't done that, but I have done this. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe he's writing uh, from Daniel 5.5, tells you about an occasion where 600 years earlier, pagan king Belshazzar is mocking God at a drunken feast in Babylon. And suddenly you can read in Daniel 5.5, the hand, a hand, a disembodied hand appears out of nowhere and starts writing judgment on the wall. Maybe this is what Jesus is writing in that dust. Meanie, tackle, pass in. Meanie, your days are numbered and they're coming to an end. Pass in, uh, tackle. You've been weighed and you've been found to fall short. Pass in, you will lose everything. Who knows what Jesus wrote? But when he stands, when God incarnate stands, the crowd melts. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And it tells you the crowd melted. They went away. This isn't the story, a story about whether a woman should be condemned or not. It's a story about whether this crowd should be condemned. Romans 3:23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's possible maybe actually what Jesus is writing is verses from the prophet Jeremiah from their prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in between chapters 2 and 5 he uses this analogy that frequently appears in the Old Testament of the people of God being an adulterous bride God their bridegroom and their husband and repeatedly they are unfaithful to him going other going after other gods suddenly maybe the crowd realize that this woman is standing there representing all of them adulterous with God sin is always personal it's a rejection of him it's a it's a throwing back at him the love that he has reached out to us with God regards all sin as personal as unfaithfulness as an aside if you've ever wondered why uh, for Christians our identity is male and female uh, marriage celibacy before marriage faithfulness and fidelity within marriage. If you ever wondered why they're such big things, it's because they prophetically represent our relationship with God. That's a bit of an aside. It's not the subject of our sermon today, but it's worth thinking about. The crowd cannot stand in the searchlight gaze of Jesus, even though it is veiled in his flesh as a man. So how will we bear the search night light gaze of Jesus when it is unveiled in his divinity?
You know, this crowd sought to put this woman in the spotlight. We, reading the story, put the crowd in the spotlight. What happens when we're the ones in the spotlight? 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everything laid bare. Every excuse exposed for the sham that it is. Every defense gone. There is a terrible beauty in sin being exposed now, this side of judgment. No one wants their sin exposed. But there's a terrible beauty when it happens this side of Christ's return because we can still escape judgment. This isn't the day of judgment. Uh, John's told us this earlier. Jesus says, John 3, 17, um, he, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. His first coming is as sa a savior, but he will come again as judge. This isn't the day of judgment. There's still time. This is the day of salvation. Jesus straightens up and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is the gospel. The blows which literally should have fallen on this woman literally fell on Jesus as he went to the cross for her. The rejection reserved, deserved by this crowd was experienced by Jesus as he died alone on that cross. When Jesus exposes your sin, don't run and hide from him. Fall at his feet. Call out to him. Jesus' parting words to this woman are full of hope. Neither do I condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. How do you hear that phrase, now go leave your life of sin? Do you hear it as a warning and a threat? Or do you hear it as a promise? You can leave your life of sin. You can go in a different direction. Uh, my good friend Akhtar Shah, who used to lead uh, Everyday Kingston, I remember him telling the story once of him. Uh, he was wrestling with God. He's walking along the road and he's asking God, um, how was it possible that Jesus never sinned? He lived on this earth for 33 years with all the frailty and weakness that you and I do, subject to every temptation that we are, Hebrews 4, 15. How was it possible that he did that without sin? And Akhtar felt God give him the answer loud and clear. There was no room. There was no room for sin. Jesus has told us in John 5, earlier on, that he follows his Father so closely. Everywhere the Father goes, he goes. What he sees the Father doing, he's doing. He's so busy following his Father, there is no room for sin. It can be the same for us. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Lead us, and as I follow you closely, I will not fall for temptation. I'll experience it, but I won't fall for it. Listen, the best defense against adultery, if you're a married man or woman listening to this or someone who might one day end up married, the best defense against adultery is to love your spouse, 
to be so devoted to finding the words and the actions of kindness that communicate love to them, you won't fall for adultery if that's how you spend your life. Adultery always starts with neglect. And it's the same with every other sin against God. We sin because we desire something else more than we desire God. Jesus says to this woman, leave your life of sin. It's a call to follow, a promise of a better life that leads to more life. We don't know if this woman actually did leave her life of sin. She, she might have walked out of that market square and said, phew, got away with it that time and gone straight back to what she was doing before. We don't know. We don't know how many of the crowd came to saving faith. But listen, if that woman did, if she did start following Jesus from that day, she'll one day find herself again before Jesus awaiting judgment from him. His searchlight gaze will be on her again as will they in the crowd, and as will you and I. Not in a grubby market, but before the judgment seat of Christ, before the eternal throne. And the same question will be asked, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? How will you answer? Please think about this. This is the most important question anyone could ask you how will you answer on that day because that day will come if you start talking about all your good deeds you're just holding a handful of dust it's just going to fall away I pray that you get to answer with humble confidence where are your condemners who condemns you no one Lord You've silenced them all by what you did on the cross. You are the perfect Lamb of God who has taken away my sin. Or oh, to look up on that day into the searchlight gaze of Jesus and see a twinkle in his eye. I don't condemn you either. Come. Leave your life of sin. Leave that life you lived before and follow me into my Father's kingdom. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, what a glorious gospel. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you lived on this earth, that you spoke these words, that you demonstrated to us how to follow. We put our trust in you afresh this morning, the perfect Lamb of God. Amen.